Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Adrian Bridge had two careers in the military and banking before he joined the wine business in 1994. Now CEO of the Fladgate Partnership, he's one of the most articulate, dynamic and innovative people in the port trade. Our fascinating chat covered climate change, the importance of good spirit, his love of mountaineering and different drinking vessels, and why foot treading in Lagarde's gives his ports a vital 1% extra in quality. Hello, Adrian. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Tim. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. Uh, it's a pleasure to see you, uh, or to hear you, in fact. And, uh, just tell me, where are you? Uh, presumably you're in the Douro somewhere, are you? Well, I'm not actually. No, I've popped over to London. My mother's uh, 85th birthday today, so uh, gathering with the family for a glass of wine and a bit of a celebration. So you've had a good lunch and a couple of glasses of port? Well, I think uh, things to be done, yes, absolutely. <laughs> tell me, talking about your mother, just tell us a bit about your background I mean, where you were brought up and wh- your family weren't in wine, were they? No, my family wasn't in wine. In fact, I was, I was born in Canada, uh, but the reason for that is that's where my mother was when, when I turned up, as it were. Um, no, I grew up in, in the UK, over in Berkshire. I went to school in Berkshire, um, and then you know, eventually uh, you know, had most of my formative years um, in the UK, went to Portugal a little bit later on, but uh, most of my family remains here in the UK, so hence coming back over this way for a birthday lunch. I mean, you went into the into the military, but um, we'll talk about that in a second. Were, were, you, were your family from family of soldiers or not? No, my father had been in the RAF. He'd uh, he'd grown up in China. Um, his grandfather had gone to China in the late nineteenth century, and then had ended up being made Mandarin of the Jade Order by the Dowager Empress following the Boxer Rebellion. Yeah. And then his fa- you know, his his grandson, my father, left uh, China at the time of the communist revolution in the late 40s after after having spent three years in prisoner war camp so quite an interesting story but wow. um, got into the aviation business mm. and and we you know lived over in uh, over in Berkshire. I mean and you went to Sandhurst you were the top cadet winning the sword of honor and then you joined the first Queen's Dragoon Guards I think I've got that right uh, and you saw I think five years of active service didn't you I mean a bit of peacekeeping but I mean how kind of scary did it get where were you? Well, active service um, in the early 80s was not as active as it has subsequently become. So, yeah. you know, I, I was at Sandhurst um, and the people teaching us there had just come back from the Falklands. Uh, so really from 83 to 88, there wasn't that much going on. I did do a year in Cyprus peacekeeping with the United Nations, which w- was great fun. And then, of course, by the time I left, you know, into the early 90s, you got into the Iraq, first Iraq war and second. So uh, colleagues did that, but I didn't have a, a very active time. Yeah, you missed those two things then. Well, we did, you know, we missed those ones. But, it, you know, in those days, what we used to do is to simulate a lot of the stress and strains you get in the military. We did a lot of um, out, outward bound sort of stuff. And I got into into mountaineering and did quite a few expeditions and and sort of subsequently followed up the uh, mountaineering side right the way through to well even to today mm. I and mean, what did that time teach you i mean leadership i'd imagine would be one of the, one of the things or not 
Well, I think leadership is important, the ability to stand up and, and speak to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the importance of making a decision. You know, I mean, sometimes nowadays, I think that uh, everyone's waiting for all the perfect information before you can make a decision. Mm-hmm. And, and in the military, you make a decision with the available information. You may have to adapt it as new information arrives, but, but you have to make a decision and move on. So that's one aspect. Uh, leadership, clearly. Uh, resilience is, uh, is an important part. Um, you know, you, you, you're afraid in the military, you don't have the option of saying, well, I'm, I'm really not enjoying myself. I'd like to go back to a, a nice warm bath. I mean, if, you know, that isn't an option if you're out deep in the snow and you have a job to do. Mm. And, and you moved from the military in 1988, went into banking. You've had three careers, really, haven't you? First with Merrill Lynch, then with Nat West. I mean, had you had enough of being a soul in the military? Do you just think it was time to move on? Well, I felt I felt it was right for me at that time. Um, you know, I think the military is is a fantastic thing to do as as a young man. Um, but I did think that you know I was probably a little bit more ambitious than um, than the simply sort of to that extent back then the sort of time served uh, career path that that I would have had. And I felt there were things I wanted to do, and so I left, went into banking, which in those days, you know, was not uncommon for um, army officers to go to go and do that. And uh, had uh, you know had a great time of it, but of course, eventually left that as well. When my father-in-law asked me to come to work in his family business, which uh, which was out in Portugal. I mean, any similarities between the military and the city? And the city was pretty cutthroat at those times, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it was just after Big Bang. There was quite yeah. a lot of change going on. Um, you know, again, I think the ability to sort of stand on your Hind feet and speak and persuade people. You know, it was very important. I was in U.S. equities and eventually ended up leading the U.S. equity operation for NatWest Investment Bank. I mean, it was a you know a small business. NatWest had got into it fairly late compared to some of the big American banks, but but we had a lot of fun. Uh, there was a great sort of camaraderie, which uh, is something that you also found um, you know very much in the military. And uh, you know, I had a fantastic time of it, but and probably would have stayed had it not been that that somebody asked me to go and. Uh, and take on a different challenge. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk about Alistair in a second, fantastic guy, but you moved into Wine in 1994 to the Flaggate Partnership, which is where you've been CEO since 2000. There's a bit of a love story behind this, isn't there? Because tell us a little bit about how you met Tash. Well, I'd met, I met my wife um, in here in London, actually, at a party on the 12th of March, 1982. You know, in fact, that harvest of 82, I was out in the Douro, and I think probably have have been to the harvests ever since. I've sort of had 40 years of, of visiting the Douro, seen all the changes that have occurred. But obviously, you know, the fact that she came from, you know, a, a family-run business, uh, which has been in operation for well over 300 years. She was involved in wine. Her two sisters were not. And so, you know, it seemed a very logical thing that she and I, you know, went back to Portugal to become the next generation in, in, in a family business. I mean, was it a decision you mulled over for a long time? You know, it's not an easy decision. I mean, I think back then, you know, Taylors and Fonseca were really the leading references for quality port. And yeah, there's, a, you know, I was doing well in the city and the idea to sort of uh, leave that and go and do the, the, the job in, in the door. You know, I had to be convinced myself that I would be able to add value. Um, and that, you know, I'd be able to grow the business, um, having, having taken on the challenge. And of course, you know, as, as history now relates, you know, that has indeed been the case. 
I mean, what was Portugal like then in 94? I mean, they, they, they joined the EU by then, didn't they? Yes, they joined the EU in 86. Uh, mm. By the early 90s, they were getting things together. Um, in 1993, you know, Lisbon and Porto were joined by a motorway. So that was sort of revolutionary. Um, but it was, you know, I would have described, I did describe it at the time as really being third world Europe. Um, it was definitely a country that was, was very stuck in its, in its old ways. It hadn't had um, you know, a, a transformation in its economy like its neighbor Spain. And, you know, there was all to play for. And I think that's, you know, that's been the extraordinary journey that I've seen in, in the 30 years I've had in Portugal, how it has, has literally transformed from sort of third world Europe to now, you know, a proper integrated European uh, country with, with a tremendously exciting uh, economy and, and lots of things happening. I just wonder what it was like taking over from 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 Alistair. I mean, you worked alongside him to start with, Alistair Robertson, who's your father-in-law, and he's a bit of a legend in port circles. Be great fun to drink with. He's a raconteur, but yeah, he he pretty much invented late bottle vintage, didn't he? Was he a tough act to follow in a way? Well, certainly that was one of the considerations in going out there. I mean, how do you take over from somebody who you know is absolutely charming, loved widely in in, in the wine trade, um, had created late bottle vintage back in 1970. Uh, but in those days, you know, the port business was was a very different business as well. It was very much more a sort of gentleman's club, perhaps fully manifested in the in the factory house, the sort of the club in in Porto for British port shippers. And there were lots of different companies. Uh, most of them were sort of a uh, small to medium size. And I think that my experience in the city sort of told me that what we needed to do really was to see some sort of consolidation um, in the port industry. Um, you know, I took over as sort of managing director in 1998, although formally I didn't take the role until the 1st of January 2000 because, you know, Alistair wanted to see out the millennium. But but in 98, we bought um, the assets of a company called Borges, um, as I said, we bought the Quintas, the wood, we took over uh, 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 all the port stocks and so on, integrated into our business. And that sort of started us on a journey, which ultimately is seen us by uh, quite a few uh, companies. Because um, following Borges, you know, in, in, on the you know, 10th of September 2001, so the day before the world changed, you know, we signed for Croft Delaforce which had been the biggest transaction the company had ever done. I'd spent the summer negotiating that. It had been a complex deal because we were sharing the Croft brand with our dear friends um, at Gonzales Bias. So they took on the sherry business. We took on the port business. Uh, Diageo maintained the brandy business. And then suddenly overnight, we went from a company of about 120 people uh, to absorbing another 82 people who had been our neighbors for the last you know, 300 years. And then, lo and behold, you know, some planes fly into some um, into the World Towers, uh, you know, World Trade Center in New York, and, and the world changed. And, and to some extent, I think, fun enough, they weren't ready to sell it to us. Um, but I pushed to complete, even without all the paperwork, simply because we were due to start the harvest on the seventeenth of September, and so we wanted to be, you know, ready to get going. And so we needed to buy the company. And then, of course. Everything changed, but I, looking back, I think I think if we not pushed to get it done on on the tent, mm. um, we probably would never have done it. So, yeah. you know, in some ways, you know, fortune, however strange it may seem, fortune smiled. I mean, I just want you've talked about what sort of shape Portugal was in when you got there in '94. What what about the port industry? So it was a bit like a gentleman's club. I mean, what has changed in the thirty years you've been involved? I mean, is, is it more professional in a way? Do you think? 
Well, it's necessarily had to be. You know, I think what we've seen globally has been a consolidation distribution channels right around the world. So we talk to less customers. Um, there has been certainly consolidation in a lot of other um, areas of the drinks trade, but there's also been a proliferation of smaller brands. You've got lots and lots of people essentially ch- chasing a smaller customer base. Um, trying to sort of build relationships and, and, and that, you know, that's not easy to do. So, um, it requires, um, a, a much more uh, planned and strategic approach, a much stronger sense of partnership, working with key customers, key restaurants, where we can provide their solutions for all of their port needs. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's a major change. It certainly wasn't like that in, in back in the nineties. And indeed, but at the very end of the 1980s and early 1990s, the port industry had a little bit of a crisis. Um, and certainly when I arrived there, things were, um, you know, were just coming off the back of that. And there was certainly a, quite a bit of concern about what was going to happen with the industry. And of course, a decade later, you know, the, the multinationals all got out of it. The industry concentrated down and, and now, you know, five groups make up nearly 85% of the entire uh, port business. And, and, you know, we ourselves now account for we're number we're number three in the industry, but we are about a, th- a about a third of the quality port that is sold around the world. And of course, we now sell it in many more countries. We sell in 103 countries around the world. You know, back then in the in the in the early 90s, we probably sold to just over 40 different countries. So you've seen globalization, you've seen consolidation, uh, and you've seen a fascinating time for anybody in the wine business. Mm. But there used to be this division, didn't it, between the English and the Portuguese-owned porthouses. You've mentioned the factory house, which is sort of gentleman's club. Is that still there, do you sense? I don't really think so. I think you know, I think people now appreciate what, what each side has done for the industry. There's undoubtedly that the British port companies have uh, helped to pioneer the internationalisation, um, certainly for special category ports. Um, there's lots of smaller uh, Portuguese houses, yes, but most of those are set up as sort of garagiste uh, operating essentially out of their single property in the Douro and, and, and largely choosing to focus on table wine more than on port. Mm. Yeah. Just give us a quick overview of the Douro Valley. I mean, what influences terroir? It's terroir. I mean, some people will know it. It's one of the most beautiful wine regions on earth. Um, just give us your overview of the different subregions and where the best vineyards are and why they're special. Well, well, Tim, it's not one of the best. It is the best and the most beautiful <laughs> wine region in the world. But um, it basically... It's breathtaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is breathtaking. And, and the reason yeah. it's breathtaking is for the fact that this is a remote part of the world, um, you know, a steep valley at the end of the Douro. The Douro is 800 kilometers long. The last 200 or so are in Portugal. They carve through the sort of granite and schist to make this steep-sided valley, which mankind has tamed by cutting all these terraces on which they can plant their vines. So it's, it's very much dependent on monoculture. It's very much about growing vines. There's a bit of olive oil as well. And it's very much been able to be, uh, farmed because mankind has built all these amazing dry stone walls and so on and so forth. So that makes it extraordinary, but it sits behind a mountain range, which effectively cuts off the interior from the coastal region, which has the town of Porto at the end of the river Dura, which is a much more Mediterranean climate. And then in the region itself, we have this continental climate. So summers, you know, in excess of 40 degrees centigrade for several weeks of the summer gets down to freezing. And of course, it's up in the Douro that we actually make our ports, but we have historically 
aged them down in the town of Porto. And again, that's a unique thing. You, you very rarely find you go to a wine region and visit a winery and they can't sort of point out the window at Vines. For us, you know, they're 100 miles further east. But uh, that's the geography and that's what makes Port very special. Yeah. And then what about the sub-regions within the valley? Well, off the back of any mountain, small mountain range rises about four and a half thousand feet, so one and a half thousand meters. You tend to get fairly high rainfall that produces a lot of volume um, and, you know, moderate quality. At the far end, right by the Spanish border, you tend to get very hot conditions, very, very low rainfall, almost desert desert level rainfall. I mean, 400 millimeters a year is so about a um, you know, something close to about a third of what we would get in the Dur- in in the town of Porto, but right on the limit of where things can grow, can grow. And there you get very concentrated wines, but very low volume. And in the middle, around the town of Pinhão, is where you get the mixture and balance between those two. And it's not surprising that Pinhão really is the heart of quality port. And anyone visiting there will see, you know, all the famous names on on you know with with their vineyards and their names. Um, on name boards around those vineyards. And that really is where you get this perfect balance and, and, and we can make great port. I mean, the, the Flaggate Partnership, as it's known, is an, an alliance of, of several port houses. Just tell us what they are and how they differ, can you briefly? And, and, and is there a pecking order? Is Taylor's always at the top? Well, Taylor's was the original company. Yeah. And obviously, you know, what, when I arrived in 1994, there were still people who felt they worked for Taylor's and others who felt they worked for Fonseca. Mm. Now, Fonseca had been bought in 1949. So, you know, nearly, nearly 50 years later, it hadn't fully integrated. And so it was, you know, really, we didn't want to have that happen with, as I say, Croft and Delaforce that had been our neighbor for the last 300 years. And hence, we created this thing called the Fladgate Partnership. And that's interesting because John Fladgate, who was a key owner of the business in the 19th century, uh, had a number of children. Um, his son, who worked at Taylor's, and daughters, one who married into the family that owned um, Fonseca, another married into the family that was uh, running Croft, another actually into Offley. So really the thought was that uh, back in the middle of the 19th century, around the 1860s, you would have had people from from Croft and Fonseca and indeed Morgan Brothers, which was a port company we also bought with, with, with Croft and Delaporte, and Taylor's all sitting around the same sort of um, dining room table at, 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 at key moments. And in a sense, the whole idea of the Flaggate Partnership was to bring back the sense of family and allow each of the family members to express their character. You know, Taylor's tends to be a little bit more um, a little bit more English, yeah. a little bit more elegant and structured and, and a little bit more reserved, whereas something like Fonseca is is a much more exuberant style of port. It's much more Mediterranean, much more Latin. It's opulent, it's, isn't it? I always think Fonseca. Well, it's yeah. opulent. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I often try and describe it as Rubenesque, if you think of sort of Rubens' paintings. <laughs> yeah. They're sort of big, round, yeah. plump, and full of promise. And in a sense, that's what Fonseca is all about. But then you move to Croft. Croft, Croft produces this wonderful focused laser fruit um, which, which produces tremendous purity, which is, is so important, particularly when you're making, you know, great vintage port. Um, Delaforce, you know, we, we did actually part ways with that, uh, in 2007. I, I think that, you know, I felt that it had a very different business. It was the brand leader in Germany. The German market was, was very different. And so, you know, Delaforce w- was sold. So really our key houses, you know, are Taylor, Fonseca and Croft, each with their own personality, each, you know, well supported. But you are correct in one sense, and that is Taylor's is the brand that is most distributed around the world, and perhaps because of that is the most well-known. I mean, David Gibberish is your 
long-term winemaker, son of another legendary winemaker. Well, what does he bring to the company? I mean, he, he's, he's lovely, I mean, but he's also very brilliant, isn't he? Well, I think the importance of, you know, of, of winemakers, particularly when it passes on down through families, is you end up with consistency. The great wines, you know, are partly about consistency of, of house style. Um, and so to have had Bruce there, uh, the blending team behind Bruce, with the same people who are behind David and, and, and that has all sort of moved on. And, you know, briefly, my wife, Natasha, was, um, you know, the head blender for about 12 years. She was the head blender. And, um, you know, because when you look at port, 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 if you make vintage port, it, it's really all about the terroir and the, the individual vineyard. If you're making uh, things like aged tawnies, which are aged for 10, 20, 30 years, then it's all about the blending. You know, the winemaker is really crucial for that part when you're making reserve rubies, LBVs, all these things which, which require, you know, skill, um, and, 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 and real sort of understanding of, of the grapes in order to maximize the potential of the fruit. And I think, you know, that's where David and indeed Antonio Magalines, our head viticulturalist, and he and Antonio have formed an extraordinary bond over the last 30 years, you know, have been able to really bring you know, fantastic, um, as I say, continuity and quality. Mm. And beyond that, you know, David has actually worked very hard on on the spirit because port is a fortified wine and the spirit uh, market was liberated in the early 90s and David really took on uh, that. And, and and again, we've made huge strides in, in, in that process. It's interesting because I think people forget about that, don't they, the importance of the spirit. You know, the spirit's got to be pretty good, isn't it? Well, it does. I mean, the way I liken it is, is it's a bit like a painter. You know, if you, if you are going to paint a painting, you need a canvas. You can buy a cheap canvas or you can buy a quality canvas. Um, obviously, if you don't want the painting to fall apart, mm. you're going to spend good money on getting a good canvas. Well, spirit only has the job of stopping the fermentation. Thereafter, it's 20% of what's in a bottle of port. So you better make sure that it's high quality. Um, uh, because that it will always be there. So spirit is your canvas in a sense, is it? Spirit is our canvas. Yeah. Spirit is what the, the, the terroir, the expression of the vines, the expression of the properties yeah. is painted on that canvas of spirit because the spirit's job is simply to stop the fermentation by raising the alcohol to about 20%. Yeast cells die at about 15. So you kill off all the yeast cells and you get left with unfermented grape sugar, which of course is why port sweet is that it's natural grape sugar that provides that sweet, sweetness. But, but thereafter, Spirit has no other further role mm. other than it's in the liquid. And you can't retrofit it. You can't say, oh, well, you know, let's just take that spirit out and put another one yeah. in. Spirit's in there from the beginning. So the quality of spirit is hugely important. And certainly David, you know, understood that very early on and, and, and has dedicated an awful lot of his professional career to, to making sure that we get super high quality yeah, spirit. Yeah, very interesting. Tell us a little bit more about the Flaggate partnership as it is now. You said it's an old company that is only looking forward. I mean, just tell us about how old it is, because it didn't start out making port, did it? Tell us about this chap, Job Beersley. Wonderful name. Well, well yeah. I, I think <laughs> or Job, was, I think probably, rather than Job. I was probably Job, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it was Job. Mm. Job Beersley, who, um, you know, who left who left London um, in, you know, 1692 to set up in Port Portugal, uh, take, you know, buying Portuguese wines, trading them for his for wool that was being exported by his family from Britain. The family also owned um, a, a a sort of coaching house in Spitterfield here in London. So they had sort of a hotel, restaurant, meeting place as as those things were in the late uh, 
in the late 17th century, but he ventured out to Portugal, uh, set up a business. Uh, his son ventured right up the Douro, which, which I think, uh, by all the accounts, was an extraordinary venture that you, did, you undertook um, with many days on a mule crossing that mountain range. Um, and in fact, they were the first people to buy a, a vineyard in the Douro back in, the first foreigners to buy, and that was back in 1744. And of course, then what happened is, is it went to the grandchildren. The great grandchildren uh, were mostly uh, ladies. And in the end of the 18th century, um, ladies were not allowed to have their wealth in their own name. So actually, at that stage, the company was called Webb Campbell and Gray, being the surnames of the husbands of the heirs of Joe Beersley. Yeah. They hired a man called Mr. Taylor. So Mr. Taylor makes an appearance of about 26 years in our 332, but it's his name that stuck. And yeah. that really was a testament to the early 19th century. So he was around about 1810, 1820. Um, that's when people started to ship and started to use the name of the shipper. Up until then, they just bought wine. Thereafter, it's, well, I'm going to buy Mr. Taylor's port. And then it became how, it, how the brand was created. How interesting. I mean, talk about looking forward. I mean, you're not afraid to innovate, which is one of the things I like about you and the company. You pink port, you know, wines in cans. Um, do you think those innovations have helped to change the image of port? Well, I think they help certainly to uh, make, make sure the industry is pushing forward. Uh, something like Rosé Port, it was a big challenge to do. It took me three years to get that created because – you know, rosé port didn't exist. I remember very well. We, I, you know, with David, I'd said, "Look, can we do it?" He said, "Yes." We made it. We took it to our regulator. We said, "We'd like to make uh, rosé port." He said, "Well, you can't. It doesn't exist." And I said, "Well, you know, here's a bottle. Try it." You know, and, and 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 yeah, it was a challenge. But but I think you know what it did was it created a new consumption moment, um, and it it created a little bit of excitement in the port industry. Obviously, the ready to drinks uh, have again created more consumption moments and, and more convenience. Um, and I think as a result, um, you know, we have remained as an industry extremely relevant mm -hmm. and been able to grow our business. And, and we've innovated there. We've innovated in age tawnies in, in the super premium. Um, you know, we launched back in 2010, a, 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 a port that had been a reserve port for eight, just to go into the age tawnies. We sold it as an individual port. And that was the sign from 1855. And we were really selling a piece of history. Um, and people around the world connected to it and felt that spending, you know, a couple of thousand pounds for a bottle were, were, was not that important when you consider just the the extraordinary story in life of, of a wine like that. Obviously, it's not for every consumer, but for those who could afford it, um, you know, it was very, very special. Yeah, but I suppose that's an example of you being quite traditional in a way. You know, you've got these old these old uh, pipes of of, 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 of port uh, hanging around. But you're also very traditional in things like foot treading, aren't you, in Lagars? Is that a tradition that's in danger of dying out? I mean, what have you guys done to keep it alive? Well, I think the answer is uh, that it we do it because it produces the best quality port. Mm. So we use it for our finest grapes. Now, as, as labour um, shortages appear, uh, the amount that we can do, you know, possibly becomes more limited. And, and certainly we've been trialing, um, because we now have a mechanized version in the Lagars as well to, to, you know, do the treading during the day, which would traditionally be done only by about four or five people. Whereas the nighttime treading, you'd probably have 22, 24 people in a Lagar. Uh, we're still doing that bit. 
but the daytime is being done by a machine. So we're, we're kind of innovating, mm. looking at new ways to do it, but not losing the tradition because our own tastings suggest that it makes the port one, one and a half percent better. Now, for many, many people, they probably can't taste the difference, but we can, yeah. and that's what matters. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating doing the treading. I mean, I, I think I may even have done it with you at one point. Um, you know, it lasts about three hours, doesn't it? I mean, it's, 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 quite, it's quite an endurance test, isn't it, for the people doing it? Yeah, well, Tim, I, I, if I recall correctly, you insisted on going down and doing the cut, which is the first <laughs> two hours when people literally march in a line and there's total silence <laughs> and somebody calling out left, right, left, right. Um, so you wanted to do it properly. Normally, that's the stage when we would be having dinner and they would come down after dinner just for the sort of last hour or two disco. of singing and dancing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, not exactly disco. We try to have some of the traditional Portuguese songs, yeah. but inevitably we've got things like the, the chicken dance or the birdie song, um, the conga, all sorts of things <laughs> happen in a lagar. But uh, the whole idea is you, you party. Yeah. You know, it's harvest after all. It's the end of an entire a viticultural cycle, you're making port, and you're making it the best way possible. You're treading on those grapes. Yeah. Another thing where you've been ahead of the game is your concern about the effects of climate change. I think you saw this quite early. Just tell us how you're noticing it affecting the Douro Valley and how growers and, and producers should adapt. Yeah, I mean, we'd done a lot for, for ourselves because we thought it was important. We won an award in 2008 for a type of uh, planting that we were doing, uh, a new way to plant in the Douro that had eliminated all the herbicides and produced better quality grapes, which obviously is what you need to make great quality port. Um, now, uh, what happened really was we were working just with our professional farmers in the Douro sharing best practice. And I remember somebody coming to me and asking whether we would sponsor a conference to tell people about the problems of climate change. I said, well, hang on, they either know it or they don't. You know, I, I'm much more interested to, to do something about the solutions. So we had this conference called, you know, climate change leadership, mm -hmm. um, solutions for the wine industry. And, you know, got Barack Obama there. We launched from that something called the Porto Protocol. The Porto Protocol works across the world now. It's a foundation that, that we fund, but it's in 20 different countries. And, you know, its role is really encouraging wineries to share what they're doing, uh, what they're doing successfully in order to um, mm -hmm. mitigate climate change. And, and do you think most of the stuff that people can do is actually in uh, in the in the vineyard? I mean, the stuff you can do in the winery, but I would have thought the vineyard is the key point, isn't it? Well, certainly um, the agricultural part matters. You know, the carbon footprint, um, but you know, the use of pesticides, herbicides, um, even things like the, the your wooden posts which you put in a in your vineyard. You know, they may have been treated with some pretty nasty chemical chemicals that leach into the soil. Uh, erosion runoff um but then all the way through the value chain so you know what we're trying to do is to get companies to share best practice mm. because very often i find the biggest problem on climate change is essentially the idea that somebody else is going to solve the problem yeah. and all of us are part of the problem but equally all of us are part of the solution and the next point you get is everyone says well i don't know if i can start because it's very difficult and i don't you know it's expensive and so on and so forth so what better than to have case studies from companies that have already done something, which you can literally go onto the site and anyone can go, any one of your listeners can go onto, you know, portoprotocol.com and just see case studies of what people are doing. And, and the idea then is you're removing the barriers to in, to action. You're saying, look, don't sit there wondering what to do. 
Go learn from what other people are successfully doing and see how you can implement that or adapt it for what you're doing. And that way, you know, we'll try and tackle the, tackle the problem together. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about table wine because you mentioned this. I think you said that one of the big developments over the last 30 years has been the emergence of, of some very good table wines. There were some known before that, obviously. I mean, you were slow to get into that in a way. When you, I just wonder why, why the reluctance? Because you've now got Flatgate still and sparkling wines. What's going to happen under that umbrella? Well, there wasn't really reluctance so much as the fact that the growth in the port industry for the last 20 years has been special category ports. And that's what we focus on making. So this is your, you know, your late bottle vintage, your Fonseca Vin 27, your age tawnies, your vintage ports and so on and so forth. And, you know, the, the reality is that the expectation that people would have from tailors was that if we were going to be making a, a great, ta- a table wine, a great, it would need to be a great table wine mm. that, that could be considered one of the top mm. table wines of the world. And all, obviously to make that, you need to use top quality grapes. You can't use the same bunch of grapes for two things. Mm. Um, so, so really, you know, the, 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 um, internal competition, if you like, for those grapes has meant that we've focused on port in the Duro and we continue to do that. What happened, um, earlier last year was we, um, encountered a business from a gentleman who had really made some outstanding wines, but was making them in the Mingu, mm. the Dang and Bairada. So outside our region, but absolutely world-class quality. So there was no competition for grapes. What there was was a business that was really domestically focused. I mean, they had 97% of their sales were in Portugal, and yet they're making world-class wines. And of course, our business is a much more international business. You know, we are about 93% export. Mm. So the idea being we could take those great wines and then with our connections around the world, really showcase um, something of what Portugal's really able to do. I think if we get into table wine in the Douro, it'll be because we buy a specific vineyard to do it, not because we, we use our own vineyards. We'd need to buy something specially for that. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't discount that. I think that what we're seeing, particularly because of tourism and, and, and we help. So a certain extent, pioneer in tourism. I'm sure you're going to want to ask about it. But with a number of people that are coming, they're learning about Portuguese wines. They're super interested. And I think, you know, it's only appropriate that we have a response to our distribution and, and, and retail partners around the world uh, to offer them great quality table wine as well. Interesting. I mean, do you tend to find that a top port vineyard is also a top table wine vineyard or not necessarily? It's not something we've done, but there are certainly very many examples of companies that have done that um, in the Douro Valley. I mean, many of the port houses have gone. Yeah. Naval would yeah. be a good example. Yeah. You know, they've got some lovely port and they make some lovely table wine off the same vineyard. They're making a choice on how they use their grapes and what is, you know, that's right for them. Um, you know, we, we, as I say, have been so focused on the growth in special category port, which has been you know, it demands a lot. What, what I think people tend to forget is if you're, you know, if you're trying to make a lot of LBV, which we sell at six years old or 10 year old tawny or 20 year old tawny, you need a huge amount of stock. Um, you know, each, each bottle of 20 year old, we need two liters at the beginning to sell one liter 20 years later. Mm. So there's an awful lot that you have to make. Now, the, the evaporation process of that, the angel share, you know, is a hugely important part of it, but, uh, it's big stock holding matters. And, and in our particular case, I think we could probably f- have enough port stocks to fill about 17 Olympic swimming pools. It's uh, <laughs> a lot that's, of, port. That's a lot of port. Tell us about, tell us about the, the, uh, the tourism side of it, because you've got two hotels. I think another one 
you're about to start work on, I think, aren't you? You're also the man behind the amazing World of Wine Museum in Porto. I mean, do you enjoy that side of the business? Is that fun? Yeah, I think it is fun because, um, in a sense, it's much more exciting to have wine lovers from around the world come to see us, to, to see what we do in person. It's so much easier to communicate when people can taste in the environment, you know, it's, it's, and, and, and become essentially passionate about what they see. They begin to understand. I mean, you've been to the Douro Valley. There's no photograph that's ever been taken in my mind. Uh, and I've tried many, many times, but, and, and so have some of the greatest photographers, um, in the world to capture that. And it's incredibly right. difficult to do that scale, uh, the majesty. Once you go there and you see it, then you really begin to understand how, how difficult it is to make port and how much love and attention goes into it. And that passion of what we do, I think, transfers on to our visitors and they then become our ambassadors um, around the world. And I think, therefore, tourism has a hugely um, uh, important role to play. And when we did the Yateman, mm. I mean, the point about the Yateman is it was a wine hotel. So it wasn't just about port. It was also about great table wines. Um, you know, we hired a chef who had had a Michelin star and he then came to us, got another star. You know, we now have a two star Michelin. We celebrate Portuguese uh, wine and the very best of Portuguese wine. And I think that's what it's all about. And, you know, the logical roll on from that was to create the world of wine. Timing wasn't perfect because we opened that in August 2020, but the quality of what we have got there and for anybody who, who, you know, is interested in wine or loves wine, you know, there, there are some extraordinary museums and experiences at the World of Wine. You also got this side to you, which you, you do a lot of work for charity. And one of the things you did was this idea of climbing Everest, wasn't it? To have the highest dinner party in the world, wasn't it? In 2015. I mean, you raised the money, but it was pretty scary, wasn't it? I mean, you were in the middle of something quite untoward. Well, yeah, I mean, basically, I've enjoyed climbing mountains um, all around the world over the years. Um, and, you know, yeah, I hadn't been to Everest and we there was an opportunity to go. I'd just been climbing actually uh, over in, um, in Chile just a couple of months before. Uh, we decided to do Everest from the north side in order to put up this highest uh, dinner party up on the on the north side. And we were moving up to around about six and a half thousand meters when, of course, the earthquake happened, which resulted in an avalanche and, and a lot of deaths on the south side of the uh, mountain. On the north, there were a lot of um, avalanche. I remember being in the on the lateral moraine, which is the sort of big glacier going up um, and and feeling things moving around. I actually have to say, thought it was it was the glacier on the move rather than an earthquake. But but one could see avalanche off to the sides. Of course, we didn't really know what had happened. So by the time we you know, got further up a few hours later, made a camp, sorted things out, because normally you do that in daylight. You've got to pitch your tent and sort out your food and your water and get yourself organized. But it wasn't until about five or six hours later that we actually had heard about the, the earthquake. And of course, at that stage, you know, the, the press were reporting that we were, we were missing and it was all quite an Ooh, emotional yeah. uh, and difficult time, particularly for the family. But, but, um, and then they closed the mountain. So we came down. Uh, and not sort of wanting to waste this wonderful food. We had a, a nice chef called Sat Baines, a two-star Michelin as well. He prepared the food. We got some great wines. I brought some port from uh, 1952. So, uh, yeah, the, the north uh, base camp on the north side of Everest, we had 
a rather fine black tie dinner. It was a little bit <laughs> but, lower down than we'd planned, but it was a hell of a good dinner. He still had it. He still raised the money. Did, oh, you know, yeah. I know you like keeping fit. You know, you, you're, you're, you're a climber, as you've said. You know, you're, you're a cyclist, I think, as well. But you've also got this passion for drinking vessels, haven't you? There's something you call the Bridge Collection. Just tell us the, these. how old is the oldest drinking vessel you've got? How many pieces have you got in the collection? Well, the oldest piece is about 9,000 years, and the short answer is about 3,500 uh, examples. Uh, you know, I think collecting is a disease, um, you know, and I had done built various collections in my life. And I, I suppose by about 2005, you know, I'd started to buy some drinking vessels initially to use them for dinner parties. You know, the idea of serving um, a glass of port to people in a, in a Roman glass was quite fun. And then, you know, that came to a big collection that eventually required a museum. Uh, but I think if you're going to tell the story of mankind, mm -hmm across many, many cultures, across thousands of years, actually drinking is one of the few things you can use because people have drunk for reasons of celebration or ceremonial, for ritual or religious purposes, or, or just simply for um, communal enjoyment. And therefore, you can tell that story. So I find it a, a pretty fascinating subject. And hopefully, I think everybody who visits the museum does so as well. Well, I think we should drink to the history of drinking and also to your mother on her birthday. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you much for sharing your time and your amazing knowledge. I mean, you know, you just we've only touched the surface of what you know, but thank you so much, Adrian. Lovely to see you. Uh, love to attach to the family and see you soon. Tim, great pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your podcast. Fantastic. Thank you. It doesn't surprise me that Adrian was such a success in the army in the city, but the portrait should be grateful that he met his wife, Natasha, and changed his life. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is another great fortified wine producer, Jesus Barquin from Equipo Navathos in Jerez. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.